we have been over the past almost year and a half been discussing, focusing on the Christ and um, briefly coming through. We've looked at the shadow of Christ, the life of Christ, the return of Christ, the reign of Christ, and then we've transitioned from the reign of Christ, looking at his spiritual reign in our hearts, into the reflection of Christ. And there is toddler church again today, ages 2 to 5. If you'd like to send your children back for toddler church, Marcia is back there for that. In the reflection of Christ, in, in considering then the reflection of Christ, we saw that when Christ is residing and reigning in our hearts, it will be reflected in our lives, so that what we say and how we live will be a reflection of who or what is residing and reigning in our hearts. And so if Christ is residing and reigning in our hearts, then our life should be then the reflection of him. Last week, we began considering the collective reflection of Christ. And that is, just as individually we reflect Christ, what we say, how we spend our money, how we live in our relationships, so as a body, as a, as a church, a group of called out ones, the Greek word is ekklesia, the group of called out ones, that we as a whole have this collective reflection as well. And we saw last week that the Bible illustrates us as a building, that the church is called a building. And we looked at how we interacted with one another. And today we want to move on and we want to consider the second illustration that is used biblically, and that is of the bride. And in John 3, verse 29, we read that John the Baptist, and I always thought John the Baptist, that's why, you know, we're we're a Bible church now, but that's why we all consider ourselves Baptistic because... John, anyways, but no, it's just, it means John the one who was baptizing, okay? He wasn't a Baptist, he really wasn't, he was a baptizer. Anyways, but John declared concerning Christ, he said, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John himself was stating that he was the who? He was the... Friend, friend of the bridegroom. And so, therefore, the bridegroom has a bride. Well, that bride, we're told, is us. In Ephesians chapter 5, a few weeks ago, as we were looking at the relationships that we have and how we portray Christ and reflect Christ in our relationships, we began those relationships by looking at the wife and how the wife reflected Christ in her relationship with the husband because she portrayed um, in that reflection that of the church. And so we want to consider that as we begin looking at the nature of the bride. Let's turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we want to reread that passage that we looked at about a month and a half, two months ago, when we considered that relationship of the wife. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, we read, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his own body, of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, in this passage, we see the nature, if you would, of the bride. The bride being us collectively together, the the church, the group of called out ones. And the first thing we see in that is her humbleness, the humbleness that the church, if you would, is supposed to have as the bride of Christ. Do you remember what, how we summed up the, the wife's reflection of Christ in the word submission? That the word there is not hupakuo, which means to be under the hearing of, which is told of for the um, children. They don't have an option, but they have to obey. They have to submit. When they hear it, they have to do it. So it's jump how high. 
but the wife is hupotasso. She makes a decision to bring, willfully bring herself under the authority of someone else. And that illustration is the illustration of the church. And that we, as a body collectively together, desire to bring ourselves under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, next week, two weeks from now, we'll begin looking at the church, the illustration of the body. Well, in that, very clearly, Christ is called the head, and we are the body. Well, just as the body gets its directions from the head, so in this passage, we're told that a wife is supposed to be getting her directives from the husband. Well, the illustration is then to Christ and the church. Where should the church be receiving her directives from? Clearly from from Christ, that we're supposed to be looking to Christ for these directives that we, we get. So the first thing we see is this submission, if you would, to, to, to Christ and his authority, not just in our lives individually, but to our lives as a, as a group. Every year, and, I, and every year I also say I want to do this twice a year, but every fall we have a time of week of prayer and fasting. Okay? And we encourage each one to be a part if they choose to be. But it's a special week for me because I believe it's a week where we, as a body, should be seeking to collectively go before the Lord, seeking His guidance for this body. What does He want us to do in this coming year? I'd love to start doing it again, and I keep saying that, and I keep forgetting. But I, I need to remember to set it up in the spring as well. So that we begin more and more and more as a body, as a collective group, as a church, to be coming together and seeking God's face. What does he want for us to do? I hope that as we've been looking at the prophecy, um, that you're praying. Is it what God wants us to have? I have been. Though, individually, I'm looking at it saying what? Yes, God. You know, this is God. This is God. I mean, this is the property. I know it is God. It's your will. I, I mean, I'm sure, you know. And so bring us the money. But yet the other side is, I'm feeling like Jesus in the garden, you know. Nevertheless, what? Not my will, but... Yours be done. I mean, Jesus, I mean, you know, I mean, he was God in the flesh, and he said, listen, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let it be done. Nevertheless, it's not what I want, it's what you want. And so, hopefully, as a body, that would symbolize our desire, that we want to follow, if you would, the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire when it goes. And if it's sitting, then we sit. And when it gets up and goes... We get up and go. We don't lag behind. We don't try to get in front. We just try to follow. And that's a hard thing sometimes. Because honestly, as a people, especially in this culture that we live in, we are people who want to be doing things. You know? We don't want to just set. I mean, now some of us are lazy and we want to set, but usually when we set, we want to play video games or read books or whatever. You know, we're just setting for our own purposes. Okay? And so we still want to be actively engaged in doing something. Okay? And so sometimes God just wants us to what? Sit. He wants us to wait. And He wants us to wait on His timing. And so as a body, we have to submit. Submit. That means that I'm, I willingly then give up the desires of my heart to fulfill the desires of His heart. Now, I think about you women a lot. Okay? Well, not very much. Anyways, but but still, from this perspective, <laughs> that sounds awful. I think of you women really a lot. Anyways, um, but yeah, I hope so. Uh, from the perspective of submission, I mean, I look at my daughters, <clears throat> and they're not married yet. Maybe they never will be. But I know that right now they are beginning to have their own what? Their own lives. And if God would bring a young man into their lives for them to be joined to, then they're going to have to make a strong decision. And that is to do what? Give up their own hopes and dreams, their own visions for the future, to come in under that young man's and to be able to support his. I don't know where you're at in that one, but that's where I'm at on that. Okay, And, And that's the picture of Christ and the church. We may have a vision, we may have a desire, but ultimately, we have to what? Bring it into submission to what his ultimate desire is. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Well, the second part of that humility that we see here 
is this consideration of honor. Again, nevertheless, I, I command each one of you to love his own wife, and wives, see that you respect or honor your own husband. We are supposed to be giving honor to Christ as the head and as our husband. Now, does anybody remember that word for respect there at the end, what it was in the Greek when I went through that? I know, it's been two months. But some of you hang on this. Christopher, you remember what it was? You hang on these things. No? It was the word. You women clearly aren't going to remember this one. You're going to put this one off. It was phobet. It means to fear. Okay, remember? It was to fear your husband. And you wives see that you fear your husbands, respect your husbands. And it's the respect that's based upon the fear. Okay? And, and I know you're not supposed to just live in fear of people, but there's a concept that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay? And I'm to call to, to love God. But yet, Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, I persuade men. And so there's this tender balance that's there that I understand that God brought me into the world and he can what? He can take me right back out. He breathed the breath of life into me. He can snuff it right back out and I'm dead. I mean, just like that. I may have my plans for the future, but, but he's the one who, who, who controls it all. And so there's this honor that as a body as well that we should be giving him. The reality is the blessings that we have and the opportunities that we have only come from who? From him. But sometimes we forget where they're coming from. And as the bride, sometimes we can get caught up in our own little world and forgetting that our function is to be the helpmeet for the groom. Does that make sense? When God created Eve... He created her for a purpose. And that was to be the companion and helpmeet of Adam. Apply that to the church. The purpose of the church. God didn't create a a plurality within his Godhead so that we would have Christ to die for us. He created the church as a gift for the Son. Just as he created Eve as a gift for Adam. Do you get it? And sometimes we kind of place ourselves in the priority thing and thinking it's all about us, and it's not about us, it's all about God. And it is for us then to 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 bring in humility and humbleness before him and submission and honor. Secondly, we see here in this passage that <clears throat> that Christ is as the husband that he has a desire for us, and that is for our, our holiness. It says, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And this is the reason that he gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. What is Jesus Christ's desire for us, his bride? That we should be holy. That we should be set apart. He defines it a little bit more by saying that we should be without spot or blemish. It's just like that Passover lamb that was offered. Remember how they were supposed to pick it on the 10th day of Nisan? And they were supposed to take the next four days till the twilight of the 14th day of Nisan before they would sacrifice it. And that ten, those four days in between there, they were supposed to be examining it to make sure that it was without bought, without blemish. And so when Jesus was selected on the 10th day of Nisan, as he came into the, to the city of Jerusalem, and they were, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, the next four days, as he was in the temple... The Herodians and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they're all coming to Jesus and they're plying him with questions. They're trying to make him stumble. What they don't understand is they're really checking him out for what? Blemishes. They were looking for spots. They were trying to find a blemish in this one who was seen to be the Messiah. And they couldn't find one. That's the picture of what Christ ultimately wants in the church. Now, some of you ladies have a little 
thing, and I know I get this from my mom. Okay, my mom goes nowhere without these things. It's a special, it's a very important thing to my mom. Um, she may forget other things in her her purse, but she seldom ever forgets these things. And um, it's not something that's very common. But if you would spill something, my mom would be there on the spot with her shout wipes. That's right, because she's gonna shout it out. And um, anyways, and so. You get that spot, and you grab your shot wipe, and you, and it's all gone. You ever see one of those magic erase things, those little white things, that nothing else can get the stain out, and you grab this little magic erase thing, and, you know, Mr. Yeah, I mean, you, you ladies get it, and the guys are looking at me like, huh? You know, but you get, you ladies get it, and as with the work I do now, I get it, because sometimes, you know, we can put stains on things, we go, <gasps> I don't want to replace, you know, shout it out, wipe it off, whatever, you know, if it's a stain remover, we want it, okay? Well, you know what? The blood of Jesus is better than any shout wipe there is. And his desire for this body, for this local assembly, and as we're going to talk about in a moment, for the global universal assembly, for his bride is to be holy and without blemish. But before the blemish can be shouted out or wiped out, erased, bleached out, whatever you want to look at it, you have to know what? Well, not just what kind of stain it is, you gotta know that there is a stain. You gotta know there's a blemish. If you don't I mean right, Steve? How many healthy people come to you? Well, well, checks. But but the people who really come know they're sick. I mean, someone doesn't come to get, you know, be treated for a cold when they don't think they really have a, a cold. Does that make sense? And so Jesus said, I came to do what? To, to minister to those who are sick. You know, those who are healthy don't need a doctor. Okay? And so you got to know that you got a blemish before the blemish can be taken care of. As a body... Okay? I'm trying to apply this locally to just us. Okay, But clearly applies to the Church of Augusta and to the Church of the United States and to the Church of, of, the, of the world. Okay, That's in Jesus Christ. But Family Bible Church, Martinez on Commercial Boulevard, needs to understand that it's not perfect. We're as close as you get on the earth. No, anyways. But there are blemishes. Undoubtedly. Enrollingly, we need to be seeking God's face to be holy and set apart for His use. That's His desire for us, is to be holy. Well, in Hosea, turn with me to Hosea chapter 2, we see a further illustration as well of this when God is speaking through Hosea regarding a, a period of betrothal. Hosea chapter 2, beginning at verse 16. Hosea 2. We read, And it shall be in that day, saith Yahweh, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband, and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day... I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in chesed, loving kindness, in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine and with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. God says, Yahweh says, regarding Israel, and then 
those who would be a part of the spiritual Israel in that day. He says that I am going to come and I'm going to betroth you to myself. Now you've got to understand this, this, this concept, the Hebrew concept of betrothals. Okay? And the concept of betrothal is, is similar to what we call the engagement period. Okay? But it was even more serious. When somebody was betrothed, it really were they were married from that perspective. There was a contract already arranged, okay? And so they were considered already, in a sense, married. It just hadn't been consummated. So there was a contractual relationship between the man and the woman. It just hadn't been consummated. Okay, we'll talk about that in a moment. So, I take one of my sons and I, and I betroth him to one of your daughters, okay? We get together, we, 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 we sign the deeds, They're, they are now man and wife, okay? He's got a responsibility, we're going to talk about in a moment, okay, that he's going to go now and prepare a place, you know, be, and be ready for the time when they join together, okay? But in that characteristic that we're told about here of this betrothal, that God had a particular purpose in betrothal. He says that it would be for the fact that, verse 20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Verse 19, he says, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, justice, loving kindness, and mercy. So that you will be what? Set apart to me. Set apart to me. If we are the bride of Christ, if we have been betrothed to him, then you have to ask yourself, are these character traits, are these characteristics that are described here, characteristics of this local body. Would someone describe this local body having the righteousness, if you would, of Christ? But as I shared with the victims a couple weeks ago, when we were looking at Proverbs chapter 10, and it talked about the righteous. And I said, who are the righteous? And I got these answers about those who are saved, and those who are... And I said, no, not really. Well, giving their life to Christ. Well, no, no. And what I have to bring them back to is, Someone who is righteous is walking according to the right standards of God. Not every person who is quote-unquote righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ positionally is a righteous one, practically. Does it make sense? You follow on that one? Okay. And so we can't just say, we're the righteous. No. Positionally, you may be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, but the question is, are you, if, you're, if you're not walking according to the right standards of God, then you're not what? Righteous. And so, are we in righteousness? Are, are we walking in righteousness? Justice. Loving kindness. Mercy. Within this group, within this bride, because we are one, and we'll talk about that as we go with these one another's, in this oneness, can we say that this is us? Faithfulness. These are character traits, characteristics of this betrothal that God would have wrought out, if you would, in his bride. Well, the second thing we see there, though, is the most important one, is the consequences of the betrothal, or the consequence of the betrothal. Why did he betroth Israel and those who would come to himself? What was the purpose, if you would? What was the consequence of the betrothal? Why did he do it? What's it say there in verse 20? that you may know me, that you may know the Lord. You know what's interesting? In, in many of the prophets, uh, Devin, you, I, I still remember you teaching on Ezekiel years ago, right? What's it say over and over and over again throughout the, the prophecy of Ezekiel? That you may know that I'm the Lord your God. You may know the Lord of God. When, when God delivered Israel out of Egypt, it wasn't just so Israel would know the Lord, but he wanted Egypt and all the nations to know that he was the Lord. It's God's desire as a whole that we may know him. Can anybody give me a definition of eternal life? Biblically. Don't just give me what you think it is. Quote a verse to me. Exactly right. Jesus gave it. This is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That is eternal life. True eternal life, life abundant, is knowing God. If you don't intimately know God 
First of all, you don't have eternal life. Secondly, and if you're not seeking to grow and know Him more, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you're not growing in that life. Knowing God is life abundant. I mean, it gets better and better and gooder and gooder as you go. Because you know God better and better and gooder and gooder. Okay? It's the bestest thing I could ever do. Anyways, so, um, my wife loves my English. Anyways, so, the consequence of this betrothal is to know. Now, back in Ephesians 5, okay, we're done with Hosea, you can turn back to Ephesians 5, but back in Ephesians 5, Paul says something that's very interesting. In the midst of this um, discourse that he's giving in the relationship between the husbands and the wives, he says, he goes all of a sudden, you know, when he's talking to husbands, and he begins to quote from Genesis chapter 2. And he says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall be cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Not just one. One flesh. And if you read Genesis chapter 2, it says right after that, And the two were naked, and they were not ashamed. The literal understanding of that passage is discussing the marital relationship. I think you all understand that. Okay? And that's how to become one flesh, one body. Paul said right on this, he says, Now this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Your marital act of intimacy when always revealed and nothing is withheld is the picture of the intimacy that we as a collective body are supposed to have with Jesus Christ. If I am content for less intimacy with Jesus Christ then I'm wrong. I people laugh at me sometimes about filleting myself wide open and just being out there with who I am. But that's who we're supposed to be. We are the bride. And the bride is naked to the, to the groom. I don't know how else to describe that other than I can't be seeking to hide anything from him. A, first of all, he knows it all anyway. But B, talking about my, I mean, my attitude toward that is that I need to be as intimate as I can on my side with him. He has promised me that he will be that on his side to me. For those of you who are married, and I I pray that I learn to love my wife more and more and more as I go on, and that I can reveal Christ more and more and more in my love for her. And I know it's I love her very selfishly at times. And I'm not proud of that. I just know that's there. Those are those blemishes that the, the Lord keeps revealing to me and has to keep using the shout wipes on, you know? And um, But in that relationship then, I mean, it's what a core relationship, guys, for us to realize that we are demonstrating the intimacy that God, Jesus, wants to have with the church, and you ladies, you specifically are the reflection of the bride. And do you think that Christ wants to have the kind of relationship that you all have in your marriage relationships? And I don't know, I'm not picking on any one of you in particular, but that's something to think about. But clearly when we come here as a body, as a group of called out ones, as a singular bride, which is hard to imagine, there needs to be an intimacy that is shared here that we have as well with Christ. And when that happens, the first time you had that moment of intimacy, there's probably a little trepidation of what will he, what will she think of me? Okay? That goes on in this body. If I open myself up and I share things about myself, I have to ask myself, what will everybody else think about me? 
is he going to laugh about me at work? No, understand, I'm, I'm talking about you all. Is she going is, is to mock me and, and, and wish she'd gotten somebody else? There needs to be a trust that we have in one another and that we maintain with each other. But the reality is sometimes we what? We break the trust. We blow it. Jesus said, You've heard it said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, If you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already done it. And there are times when we lust, collectively or individually, spiritually speaking, not to the physical husband and wife, but spiritual, Christ in the church, we lust after others. Could you imagine Jesus lusting for somebody else? He ought to. I mean, by looking at me sometimes, I always think he could come up with something better. But no, I can't imagine Jesus. He is the epitome of faithfulness and trueness. What about us? The character traits, characteristics of the betrothal, the consequences of the betrothal, holiness. Holiness is, is what he desires in us. Her oneness her oneness. We see as well in Ephesians 5 that that there is no um, separation. But in verse 31, we read that the two shall become what? One flesh. One flesh. Talking about this singularity that's going on there. This oneness that goes on. Now, in this, there are two things here. First of all, we have the universality of the church. But secondly, we have the unity of the church. Okay? The universality of the church and the unity of the church. And I, I am a dispensationalist. I'm a strong dispensationalist. But <clears throat> I didn't grow up in, in an independent Baptist church and traditionalism and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm, I'm very open to just seeing the, the Bible for what it is. And I don't mean that. As, and there are many people in, in our realm in our, our, who are afraid of the universality of the church. Devin spoke anathema this morning. Last week he, spe- he spoke at an Assemblies of God church. That ought not to be so. So we would say. Because if they're not clearly fully of our stripe, we should have nothing to do with them. But Jesus Christ told his disciples, you know, they were trying to, to, to shift the, the focus, you know, because they, they were... Um, they keep opening up their mouth and inserting their foot. And they said, well, Master, we saw these, these people out there, and, and, uh, and they were casting out demons. And, and, and we told them that they needed to follow us. But they wouldn't do that. So we told them they needed to stop. And Jesus said what? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? He says, listen, if they are not against us, they are for us. Leave them alone. The whole point was, you're not their Lord. You're not their master. I am. Ultimately, they're going to give an account to who? To me. To Christ. Jesus speaking. Right? They're not going to give an account to me, Bob. And so the same thing goes in the church triumphant, if you would. The universal church. There is a universal church. And yes, I'll knock your, uh, I'll blow the wigs off. I think there are even Catholics who can be saved. I know, God forbid. Anyways. <laughs> you know, but we act that way sometimes. You know, what is salvation? What does it mean to be a part of the bride? If someone has confessed their sins and looked to Jesus Christ as their what? As their Savior. We read the word. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. I am not the judge and I'm glad. And you ought to be glad too. And I'm glad you're not. Because you're just as bigoted and prejudiced as I am. In your own little way. Now we wouldn't say that. But we all have our little bitty, you know, things. And sometimes we go the wrong way and we have no standards. There are those who are universalists and they think everybody's going to be saved. 
Well, I'm not preaching universalism here. I'm not saying that everybody gets to go to heaven. But everybody who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior gets to go to heaven. That's what I'm saying. Regardless whether they go by the name of a Bible church, a Baptist church, a Lutheran church, a Presbyterian church, a Methodist church, whatever the union label is that they have out front, it depends on what the label says, what the tag says on the heart. Does that make sense? There is this church universal that's out there. And we need to comprehend the fact that whether you like it or not, they're a part of the bride. They're a part of the bride. And the bride can gather together at times and enjoy the common thread of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that I'm going to agree with them on everything. I'm going to think they're very unbiblical on some things. And there are some people that I really <laughs> groan at because I think if someone's really saved, how can they really believe that? I mean, the word of God is so clear. And yet, they profess with their mouth with great joy and love and ardor a love for Christ. And they would profess the same Christ as me. Second Corinthians chapter 11 says, Paul says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy for I'm in fear that just as Eve was deceived, so very well you may be deceived, that someone may come in with another Jesus, another spirit, or another gospel, and you may very well accept them. And so I've got to be careful. There are other spirits out there. And there are other Jesuses out there. And there are other gospels out there. But if somebody professes the same Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, who was born in the Virgin Mary, in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, healed the sick, healed the lame, healed the blind, you know, died on the cross, was raised again the third day. I'm just, you know, I mean, just go through the whole thing. How can I say he's not saved? I mean, he's he has no other confession other than Jesus Christ. Why should God allow you into heaven? It's all about Jesus, not about me. Well, praise God. I don't get why you, why you believe that other stuff, but let's just talk about Jesus. <laughs> because we ain't got nothing else in here. That's my Jesus. But if it's some other Jesus, it ain't my Jesus. When the Mormons come to my door, it's not my Jesus. When the Jehovah Witness comes to the door, it's not my Jesus. And I'm very honest with them. We have two different Jesuses. Mine's the eternal God, and yours is a created being. We can't have the same Jesus. One of us is wrong. If they come with a different spirit. I mean, there are people who have the Holy Spirit, and they do different things than I do. Jesus said, be careful, because it's the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit that will never be forgiven. Kind of like the Omega thing, the Alpha and Omega thing. You know, we, you know God's the Alpha and Omega. Well, when you look at a, a and I don't want to put God, the Godhead as a pack of dogs, but you understand what I'm getting here, right here, okay? Whose job is it to protect Omega? Alpha. Alpha always protects Omega. That's exactly right. Okay? You have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. What was the Holy Spirit's job? To glorify the Son. What was the Son's job? To glorify the Father. Do you get it? it? I mean, there's a hierarchy. Even though they're three and yet one, and though they're co-equals, yet they have different functions. It was never said in the Scripture, if you blaspheme the, the Father, it can't be forgiven you. That can be forgiven you. It never says, if you blaspheme the Son, it can't be forgiven you. It can be forgiven you. But what Jesus says, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it will never be forgiven you. No, I'm not going to go there. I, I think that that blasphemy is, is rejecting the, the gospel, okay? But it's enough there for Bob to always be on my toes that I don't want to blaspheme the work that the Holy Spirit is doing. And since I'm not God, it's very hard for me to be the judge. What I can say is, this doesn't really match up with what I understand biblically to be what should be happening here. Does that make sense? And so I, I've got to be true to God in that, and I can say... This I don't think, but I want to stop short. And people are like, "How do you?" And it's like I don't know that I'm trying to walk that fine line between trying to be biblical myself and not condemning people who think differently than me. And so we have to define who the Holy Spirit is. But if they pass that test, they have the same Jesus, they have the same Spirit, they have the same gospel. Then they're what? They're part of the bride. And then we have then this unity of the church, which is our little local assembly as well. Okay, in out there, that there should be a oneness that's here. I mean, we're a bride. We are a single unit. Now, we're going to talk again in two weeks about the body and how we have different functions. And last week we talked about the building and how we're different parts of the building as well. 
But this week, the bride, the concept is unity. It's the oneness that there is in Christ and his desire for, for holiness. But let's move on. That's the nature of the bride. The future of the bride is very exciting. We're told in John chapter 14, and uh, you can turn there, but I'm going to read it for the sake of time. It says, In my Father's house are many's mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, Hosea, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. In other words, I am him. You want to see the Father, but I've been with you all the time. But Jesus said to him, this thing in John 14, and to understand this, you've got to understand again that concept of the betrothal. Remember what I hinted at earlier? That the betrothal would happen, there would be the contract. And then the bridegroom, who is now the bridegroom, he would go away normally to his father's estate, and he would begin to prepare a place for he and his bride to dwell. I know, and the King James, in the New King James, such as says, in my father's house are many mansions, that I hate the birth of the bubble, but in the Greek it says dwelling places. Okay, And the picture is wonderful because it has the mansion. And, but notice it's the bride going to the mansion. But we've already decided that the bride is made up of what? Many, many people. And so, there may be a mansion waiting for us, but guess what? You're going to cram into the same building. That's exactly right. we got a room waiting for us. Amen. Amen. And he says he's going to do what? He's going to prepare it. Isn't that awesome? Just in this concept of the betrothal, the, the bridegroom has gone, and he is preparing a place for us. And we're told that after he has it prepared, the second step is he's going to return. He's going to come back. And he says, and when I got it ready, I'm going to come back for you. So that where I am, there you can be also. And it was always an exciting thing because you didn't never know when the bridegroom was going to come. He wasn't going to come until he had the room ready. Now, we just finished a job yesterday, and it's not totally overly finished. I'm going to have to go back for a day or two in May at some point to try to finish it out. But, you know, just we start off just doing, you know, painting the house and maintenance stuff and da-da-da-da, and then the people decided they wanted a, a floor. Well, okay, that's fine. We, you know, I purposely took this past week off because I wanted to have a week off to catch up on all my admin before we left for Florida, which, you know, clearly is not happening. And, um, and I thought, well, that's okay. We can just kind of throw that in. You know, it's just a floor, and we'll start the prepping as we do everything else and just kind of throw it in, you know? And... Uh, charge a little bit more, but throw it, you know, just kind of work it into the rest of the work. And, uh, well, I started peeling back the linoleum last week just to kind of see what we're going to have to do when we got to the, the, the dishwasher and did we have enough space, you know, when we add the, the, the ceramic tile, you know, we're going to add about a half an inch. Do I have the half an inch? You know, what am I going to have to worry about when we come to the And as I pulled back the linoleum there, it was wet. And I went, hmm. That is, I want to ignore this right now, <laughs> you know. And so I said, but I what? I can't ignore this right now. So now I have to peel over this side and this side to find out why it's wet. Right side was nice and solid. I got to the left side. I pushed my finger in it. And we're talking puddles of water coming out from my finger being pushed into their floor. But they had two coats of linoleum and stuff like that. So it wasn't, the the linoleum starting to peel a little bit. But they had no idea that their floor was totally going. And it was bad. I mean, it's not coming out. It's all underneath the cabinets, which means what? Now we have new cabinets. And I've got less than a week to get it all done. We did, actually. And, but you've got to worry about the plumber schedule, too. Anyways, so, but anyways, so needless to say, at this point, they've got new cabinets and new tile floor and everything. But we had a 
work like till at least eight o'clock every night. I mean, and Thursday and Friday we were working till ten, eleven o'clock. I think we left eleven thirty on Friday night and went back yesterday to, to get it all done. And that was part of the test. I was going to share my testimony. I thought, ah, you guys hear too much of this stuff. But I mean, God, I mean, it's just so neat that I'm even preaching this morning. I get this. This is all done. I mean, because I mean, this week was just not so from the paychecks this week. Everybody else thought they were exciting. Anyways. Uh, the guy riding him, you know, that's why when Gabrielle came out, I was thinking, she ain't seen nothing yet, baby, at all. <laughs> and uh, so they, you know, I mean, when my twins, who are doing their, their schoolwork, each have almost 40 and over 40 hours that I'm paying them for, that tells you how much, you know, and I had two other guys working for me. So four guys, plus me, five guys working solid on it. Anyways, but we had to get it ready. And then I could get them and bring them in to the, that's Jesus. He's getting that room ready for us. And when he's ready, he's going to come back. He's not under the time constraint that I'm under. He's got all eternity. okay? But he's got it planned. He knows the time. We don't know it. In fact, Jesus said, only the Father knows it. But when it's ready, we know he's coming back. And he's going to come in the clouds and he's going to call to us. And he's going to catch us up to meet him. Some of us may go through the portal of death. But some of us, and I believe it's happening in my lifetime, whether I'm still on the earth to, to see it or not, I hope I am. That'd be kind of fun. Huh? You know, here one moment, gone. Shoom! You know, and having the box seat from above while everybody else is trying to figure out what just happened down there. And uh, anyways, Jesus is going to come back and, and, and take us up to be with him. And then we're going to get to heaven, what we read this morning in Revelation chapter 19, that marriage supper of the Lamb. What an exciting moment it's going to be. Where we, where, where, um, Handel's Messiah is going to be sung like it's never been sung before. Or the Lord God on Neep. The praise isn't going to be to that tune, but it's got to be. I mean, at that point, I mean, you know, and just to really ruin it if, if the, the angels of heaven aren't singing it that way. And, um, you know, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And he's going to declare, just as we saw in Hosea, you shall be my people, and I shall be your God. And there is the consummation of the marriage. The fullness of the intimacy will at that moment be known. Do you know why? Because 1 Corinthians 15 says, this mortal shall put on immortality. This, this corrupted shall put on incorruption. No longer will I have the sin of this flesh corrupting the intimacy that I can have with Jesus Christ. But I will see him as he is and I will become like him because I will see him as he is. Do you get it? First John chapter 3, what we've been memorizing. It all comes into play. And we're going to be naked to one another, if you would. Not necessarily physically. I don't know how we're going to be clothed. But spiritually, it's all the intimacy, the innocence is all going to be there. I'm no longer going to be dealing with this decadence, if you would, of my unrighteousness, of my flesh, the filth of my own of my own rags. But when he catches me up and he has prepared that place for me, I'm going to shout it out. And I'm going to be in his presence in true holiness. So, my first question to you is, are you a part of the bride, or are you a part from the bride? A space makes a big difference, doesn't it? Hopefully, you are a part of the bride, and not a part from the bride. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you're not a part of his bride. You will not be there when he comes back. And today could be the day of your salvation. There won't be any fear for you. How scriptural is your view of the church? Do you recognize the bride is larger than this local body? Again, I know that that's a struggle point, and there may be some of you who would struggle with me in that. But I feel like I stand on the scriptures in saying that it goes beyond this little local body. I am definitely not a Baptist brider. How committed are you to living a chaste life to the Lord, both individually and a collective gathering? 
brought us into holiness. Collectively, we cannot be holy if we are not individually. We need to be seeking to be set apart unto him. And finally, how focused are you on the imminency? I missed a couple of letters there. Imminency of the... Isn't that awful when you continue? You, 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 I go through this presentation two or three times making sure of my slides and everything. And I re, you know, but clearly I didn't read this one very well. Anyways, how focused are you on the imminency of the bridegroom's return? Are you yearning for it? Are you looking forward to it? I mean, are you looking... I mean, not that you're riding around looking at the clouds because then you're going to have accidents. But you, go, you know what I'm saying. That, that, you're, that you're yearning. I, I'm yearning for it. I mean, man, I, I hope that someday someone's going to be mad at me because I didn't finish their job. Because I was interrupted by, by, by a higher, by a higher part. You get it? I mean, you know what I'm saying? You know, the, the worst place to be on the day of the rapture is going to be in a Baptist church or a Bible church or someplace where, where all of a sudden somebody's going to turn around and they're going to see all these clothes laying around and they're going to say, oh, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Don't let that be you. Don't show up to church one day and find out that everybody else was gone. Let's pray. Father. I thank you for you. I thank you that you have brought these illustrations into the to your word, Lord, that we would understand more what you desire from us. And the fact that you have called us your bride <coughs> is amazing to me. The intimacy that you desire from us is just mind-boggling. Lord, I pray that you help me and help us as a collective body, as a collective gathering, to desire to be open before you. Desiring to be cleansed for your honor and glory. Help us, Lord, to, to follow your direction. To seek your face and to magnify you. Not dragging the feet, not grumbling and murmuring, but seeking to give you the honor and glory that you deserve. And Lord, help us to then have that those eyes that are open looking to the future, looking to the time of your return, that we may join you intimately in the Father's house, that we can enjoy you forever. Help us to live that out in our lives today. In Christ's name, amen.